When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today, my guest is Liz Elting, a visionary entrepreneur, philanthropist, and business leader who has built a global business empire from her passions for languages. She is the founder and former CEO of TransPerfect, the world's largest language solutions company, which she started from her NYU dorm room in 1992 and grew to over $1.1 billion in revenue and over 100 offices worldwide. She is also the founder and CEO of the Elizabeth Elting Foundation, a nonprofit organization that supports women's empowerment and equality causes around the world. She is a vocal advocate for women's rights and a frequent speaker on topics such as leadership, entrepreneurship, and diversity. She has authored the best-selling book, Dream Big and Win, translating passion into purpose and creating a billion-dollar business, which shares her inspiring story and offers practical advice for aspiring entrepreneurs. She's been recognized as one of Forbes' richest self-made women since 2016 and has received countless awards and honors for her outstanding achievements and social impact. She speaks five languages fluently, holds a BA in modern languages and literature from Trinity College and an MBA from NYU Stern. She is a trailblazer who continues to shape the business world with her vision and values. Welcome to Success Story. I'm your host, Scott Clary. The Success Story podcast is part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. They've been supporting the show for over two years now. And when it comes to running an incredible business, HubSpot's got your back. Now, if you're an entrepreneur, you know that nothing matters more than generating revenue. But salespeople aren't just closing deals. They're tracking down leads. They're forecasting growth. They're whipping up reports, managing contacts, creating content, crunching numbers. The list of tasks goes on and on. With Q4 around the corner, there's a better way to win. It all starts with the new HubSpot Sales Hub. Now, with the HubSpot Sales Hub, your data, tools, and teams are fully linked inside a smart and highly customizable platform that feels good to use. It's easy. Turn prospects into pipeline and close your deals all in one place. Plus, sequences and smooth workflows help reps streamline tasks and spend more time on what they do best, connecting with customers. With Sales Hub, closing big deals is simple. Try it for yourself at hubspot.com slash sales. So hi, Scott. It's so great to be here. And a major inflection point in my life was when I was 14 and I was spending a couple weeks in Vermont uh, with my family and my cousin was visiting and my cousin and I, and I happened to be crossing the street in the town of Manchester, Vermont. And the last thing I remember was walking out to the street where I was all of a sudden hit by a car. I flipped into the air, landed on my head. And that's what I was told. And I blacked out after that. I was rushed to the hospital actually in Albany, New York, the, the closest good hospital and my parents were also, uh, they, they were told and they met me there and I remember nothing. I was unconscious. I ended up having a fractured skull and I was in a coma. 
at the same time, there was another boy who was in a similar accident. He was hit by a car. He was my age. He had a fractured skull and he was right next to me in my the hospital. And my parents and that boy's parents were there together, praying, holding hands, just wishing their kids would be okay. My parents tell me stories of how they were saying things like, oh, gosh, hope, hopefully she'll just come out of this alive. Hopefully, you know, she'll be able to talk and she won't have severe brain damage. And, you know, it's okay if she's paralyzed. It's okay if she's a quadriplegic, as long as those things happen. They were kind of making deals with, the God, with God, you know, or whatever, the powers that be. So anyway, I was the lucky one. Three days after, this happened on a Tuesday, on Friday, I came out of the coma speaking French, which I had started studying and loved. And unfortunately, the boy didn't make it. So I learned very quickly, I was the lucky one. Um, I then ended up going back to Toronto after recovering for a month or two, having a very bad broken leg. The other leg was damaged. The leg ended up needing needed to be rebroken and reset. Went back to Toronto and started grade 10 at a new school. At that school, I didn't know a soul because I could barely walk and I had a major four inch platform shoe and crutches. I was brought to school every day with the special needs bus. And then it picked me up at the end of the day. And it was, it was a tough way to start at that school. And I felt like, gosh, I don't like being new. I'm shy and I'm dealing with this broken leg. And now I need to go up and down these stairs between classes, worried I, I was going to fall forward each time. There were no elevators. There were no laws that elevators needed to be provided for people with what they would call disabilities or, or special needs back in 1980. And I was late for every class. And there were these science classes that I used to take where all the kids were in pairs because that's how they were seated. Except I was the last one there. I was five or 10 minutes late because there I was going up and down the stairs and I just couldn't keep up with those big crutches and the platform shoes. And I, I was sitting, I sat by myself every class, felt terrible, spent lunches in the bathroom stall eating by myself. And it was a very difficult time. And um, I thought, wow, I, I'm going to deal with this. I'm going to get through it. And then I'm going to be grateful and I'm going to give life my all. And this happened for a reason. And I'm the lucky one. I could have not made it. So whatever problems I'm having, they're nothing. They're, this is this is this should be character building. And I am so lucky. So I ended up getting through that, got a little better second semester as far as socially. I made a friend or two. But the big thing I did was I started throwing myself into work and I realized I can be independent. I should have a purpose. I should pursue my passion. My passion was work. And then I was no, learning that I loved languages. That was where I started studying more languages. By the time I graduated from high school, I'd studied four languages and loved them. That was my, my thing. I thought I'm going to try to do something important and great in this world because I'm just so lucky to be alive. So that was an important moment. I have no doubt. Um, and I think that what's really interesting is at a very young age, you saw life in an entirely different way than most people ever have to see it. I mean, it's very precious and you don't take it for granted after something like that. But I am curious why you thought the best way to take advantage of life was to throw yourself into work when most people who have these near-death experiences, it seems to be the opposite. It seems like they 
don't want to work anymore because they see the beauty in life. But you saw beauty in, in work, which is interesting. So walk me through why that was the outlet for your energy and why that was the outlet for how you thought this was the best way to accomplish life, to achieve life. It was to go into work and to double down and to, and to push yourself. Yeah, and I think it, that's a great question because you're absolutely right, Scott. I mean, I think it was a combination of my being young and I hadn't really accomplished much of anything in my life anyway. I was 14 in, in grade 10 or 10th grade. And then also socially, it had been very difficult because I looked like the, you know, I didn't look. The odd one out. I, yeah. Yeah, the odd one out. No one wanted to talk to me. I was shy. I was uncomfortable. I was self-conscious. And I thought, but at work, I'm needed. And at work, I can make a difference. So I thought, wow, I, I, I like this. Um, it gives me confidence. It gives me independence, which I knew I needed to have anyway. That was always my plan. I, I did start working when I was young, when I was 10. I, I started and I had jobs the whole way through high school. But I thought, you know, it was easier than that social piece of high school anyway after how I started. And it was important. And I thought I can make a difference in the world with work. But I didn't know exactly what I was going to do. I just knew I enjoyed working. It gave me a purpose. It gave me confidence. And I loved languages. And so those were really the beginning pieces of what I ended up doing. Talk to me about I've, I heard this on a podcast that you did. I thought it was a really interesting point for somebody trying to figure out their career. You talk to me about passion versus pragmatism when you're trying to decide what to do because you followed passion and it led to a billion dollar company. I think a lot of people follow passion and that's not really the end result. So how did you manage the passion that you had plus building a pragmatically uh, sound company yeah you're right and and that also is a, a great question because i think what it was is i was fortunate i was lucky no question about it with my timing um as i mentioned i had studied four languages i majored in languages in college and i just pursued my passion not knowing quite what i would do with it and i think a lot of people have a passion but it can be difficult to figure out a way to make money doing it and because of the timing, because I graduated from college in the late 80s, I was able to find a job at another translation company, which at the time was the largest translation company. And it was really, it was only 90 people. And, you know, it was a very fragmented industry, lots of moms and pops, but globalization was starting. So my, my time, I was lucky with my timing uh, because I got three years of experience at that company. And I thought, wow. I love this industry. This industry is fun and exciting and there's a need, but it can be done better. I saw a real gap between what was necessary to clients and what, what was available in the industry. And that's why I was fortunate to be able to, to find that situation. So I think I was lucky with the timing. I was lucky to find a job in the industry I loved and, and find a need, a gap, a hole that needed to be filled. And, and then you know, what happened, then I went back to business school. And then, you know, what that eventually led to my starting TransPerfect. But um, again, I think the timing was good. And I figured out a gap, a need and a way to make money doing it. So that's really interesting that the largest company in this industry was only 90 people, which is 
yeah. incredibly small yeah. if you actually yeah. think about it. That's so small. So yeah. right time, right place. You had the industry experience. If you were going to, uh, if you were going to give just a, a small piece of advice for somebody that would look to emulate your success, um, somebody's trying to build something. What are the what's the checklist of startup items that you have to look for to emulate your success? How do you identify if it's the right time? How do you identify if there's a gap that is meaningful enough that you have to create a product to solve for that? Right. And I do think it's really important to go out there and get the experience. And you you can still be young when you start. I mean, you can get the experience starting when you're 10 years old and with all your part-time jobs and your summer jobs and the jobs you have through college and after and try a lot of different things and see what out is out there and see what's missing, see what is being done, but could be done better or where there's a gap. So I think seeing a situation like that is very important, identifying it or just happen either through experience or literally through just observation and being curious and asking questions and then making it so that it's something you can see being a big need, you know, that a lot of different people or yeah, could have, um, you know, either companies or individuals or both. And then basically not waiting. There's no right time. And if anything, I'm a big believer in people starting companies when they're young, because that's what I was fortunate to do. I was 26. I had just finished grad school. I was used to living on no money and my four for a dollar Raymond fried noodles. And so it was perfect because I was giving up absolutely nothing and didn't have, wasn't married, didn't have kids. So I could work and hundred hours a week. And so I think it's wonderful when people do it when they're young, um, before they have, when they're used to living like a student, I think that's a wonderful time to do it. And then worst comes to worst, it doesn't work out. And then you move on to the next thing and you've learned a tremendous amount from what didn't go well. As far as it act, what needs to be done to actually make it work is I think it's all about having a plan. And I don't mean a formal business plan that you've spent a lot of time on that you use to then pitch to investors and get funding. That's not what we did. Instead, it's a plan in your head, a vision for what you want. Uh, in, in my case, it was to create the world's premier language solutions company with offices in every major city around the world, a real one-stop shop for language solutions, and then a plan on how to get there. So, and that involves goals with deadlines. So in our case, it was just basically being all in saying, okay, going to make 300 phone calls today, going to send out 300 letters a day and doing it every single day. And we may, may have made a thousand phone calls and gotten one project. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. it's just giving it everything you have and not quitting and goals with deadlines. And, you know, I, we started out of an NYU business school dorm room. It was not a nice office situation. And this was back in the day when people were not working from home. You did not want to be working from home. And you certainly didn't want to be working for, from an NYU business school dorm room. It was not the ideal situation. So, so I said, okay, we can't do this for long. This is not sustainable. Clients are not going to want to come to us. So at the end of six months, we must be able to pay for an office. So it was all about being intense on sales with the goal you know, within six months 
to be able to. And and part of why that was so important. I mean, literally in the first the first couple jobs we got, I remember them well. The first one, it was for a law firm. Um, I remember it well. It was English and Slovak, three page job. So excited when I hung up the phone and they said, We have something for you. And I was like, Yes. Yeah, I hung it up and I was like, Oh my God, did this really happen? You <laughs> it know, validates it, everything that you work for, right? It does after yeah. thousands of letters and phone calls, after thousands. And I remember, I was like, Sure, absolutely, we can do that. Like we had been doing it every day. Um, but, and it was the first, and that was an important one. And then the funny thing was, they said, great, Liz, okay, we'll come and we'll stop by your office. We'll pick it up. We'll pick up the project. I was like, <laughs> oh God. <laughs> so I remember I had to run down to the dorm room lobby and intercept them before they got to the dorm room. And then after that, the second project was something where the client literally showed up at the dorm room. They bypassed the security and of the dorm room lobby and showed up literally at the dorm room, knocking on the door. So that first office was very important. But again, the way we got there was saying, okay, after six months, we must be able to pay for that office. We're going to put in, you know, 300 phone calls, 300 letters to get there and have the revenue to pay for that office. And I think that's all about the goals with deadlines. And that's how people can be very successful. Not being tough on themselves, being all in and not having a lot of things going on at the same time, because I think to really be successful, you kind of need to be all in. It, it can't, for us, it couldn't have been a part-time thing. And I think that's, that's, that's critical. Yeah. One of the things that I thought was very, very smart that you've spoken about, and I, and I want you to pass this lesson on to people that are in a job and want to build something, but they're scared to take the next step because you overcame a lot of stress and guilt to, to basically put everything in your life on hold and, and build TransPerfect. So there was a, a leap of faith, so to speak, even though you probably had a massive amount of confidence in yourself, but there was a bit of a leap of faith. Why do you think people have such a hard time taking that leap? What allowed you to take that leap to take the first step? Well, the, the job that I got right out of business school, <laughs> I quickly learned, and you know, I could tell tell you what happened in it. I mean, and I will very briefly, I went to NYU business school where 70% of people were majoring in finance. That's what happened in 1992 at NYU business school. I thought, I've got to try this out. It's, it's lucrative. It's, I guess it's sexy. Uh, I got to try this out. I got a job um, in the proprietary trading division of a French bank. As soon as I got there, I learned I was the only woman. And whenever the phone rang, they would yell, Liz, phone and I thought oh gosh this this is because I'm a woman and this is not for me but so I didn't appreciate the environment but then the other piece of this and I think this is very important for people is I learned very quickly finance was not for me it was a lot of number crunching a lot of putting numbers in spreadsheets and dealing with formulas and filling out forms and basically faxing them and push, paper pushing. And not that it doesn't become more high level, because of course it does. I was still an entry level person, even though I, you know, I had my MBA, but I was entry level. But I looked at what the boss was doing, the CEO of the division, and I thought, that does not appeal to me. So I quickly learned it was not my passion and I didn't like the environment. So I, I think it wasn't a hard decision. I thought, how can I stay in something where 
I don't like the culture and I'd like to create a better culture or be in a better culture. And I'd like to find a better industry. And then I thought, but I know what industry I love and I know how it can be done better. So why not take that risk right now? And I think that is important to keep in mind because why not do it? As I say, if you're fortunate to be able to do it when you're young, you're not giving up much. It's a great time to do it. But again, I didn't think I was giving up much. Mm -hmm. Perhaps it's because no one else was hiring me at the time. I mean, it was a, kind of the end of a recession. It wasn't a good time to find a job. I knew I would have trouble, but I also knew what I loved. And I, I saw an opportunity. So I thought worst comes to worst, doesn't work out, but why not do it right then? I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. Today's show is brought to you by 1Password. Now listen, we all have that one friend who's constantly forgetting passwords and needing help to get into their accounts. I have a solution, it's called 1Password. 1Password is the award-winning password manager trusted by millions of users and companies like IBM and Slack to keep logins, credit cards, and other private info safe in an encrypted vault that only you can access. No more sticky notes with passwords or using the same password everywhere. I've been using 1Password for a year now and I can't recommend it enough. It saves me time from having to reset passwords and gives me peace of mind knowing my info is secure. With convenient features like automatic password generation and login autofill, 1Password takes the hassle out of passwords. You can use it on all your devices, iOS, Android, Mac, PC, everything syncs seamlessly. And with top-notch security audits and encryption, your data stays private. So do yourself a favor and check out 1Password today Go to onepassword.com slash Clary and get a two-week free trial. Let 1Password remember all of your logins for you so you can remember what really matters. That's onepassword.com slash Clary for two weeks free. I just want to take a second and thank Policy Genius. They're supporting today's episode of Success Story. I know we all have kids. We all have families we want to take care of. And I personally check something off major on my to-do list, life insurance. It's a tough topic. It's really hard to think about, but it's so important. And the hard part was sorting through all the options. Luckily, I found Policy Genius. Policy Genius is an online insurance marketplace that makes getting life insurance surprisingly easy. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Now, knowing my family's protected brings me incredible peace of mind. 
Don't put off this important decision. Check life insurance off your to-do list in no time with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. One, one thing that I think is very, very smart that you've spoken about several times, the first million dollars in a business, that's some of the, the most difficult revenue, the most hard-earned money you're going to make. So why is the million, the first million so difficult? What, what is the, the difference between the first million, the first 10 million, the scaling from 10 million to 500 million? Yeah, it really is. And that's exactly right. It's because you have nothing. You have no, no company with no reputation and no money to fund anything. So you're really... I mean, if you're particularly if you're doing it without funding, which is the way I recommend doing it, if that's an option. But getting those that that first million dollars in revenue is incredibly difficult because I said you're basically you're smiling and dialing, selling your services, saying this is what we have, this is what we can do for you, and people are, people will say, oh, so who have you worked with before? What types of projects have you done? Um, you know, wh- where are your offices? How many people do you have? And you don't have much of anything. And so that makes it very, very difficult. And once you get that first project and then the second project, you know, that first project can create multiple, lead to multiple projects with that client. And, you know, there's one of our early projects. It was, I remember it was a like one, one and a half page job. And we thought, okay, great. We'll do it. We'll do it. You know, <laughs> it's not going to pay the bills, but we'll do it. That ended up being a very important English into Russian project about a joint venture in Russia that ended up being a test. But get and then it ended up, ended up leading to multiple projects and a million dollar relationship with this mining company. But the reason is because you don't have a company with a reputation, you know. As I so that's really why it's so important. And the same thing happened when we opened offices. We would put someone in a city and. They'd have nothing. And of course, to to get to that first million in revenue in that city, it was call after call without mm-hmm. anything to really sell. But then you bring in that first client. That first client leads to multiple relationships, ideally with that company and referrals. And same thing with the second client and the third client. And then these clients that start as you know, one project client, become multiple project clients, become MSAs with those companies, like master services agreements with Fortune 100 companies. But that's why it's so hard. I love that. Um, you also, there's a couple things that I want to pull out of that. Some things that I think are, are so brilliant. One of the things is that you don't like when people take on funding. Why was, why was this the case with you? Outside of the fact that maybe it was difficult to get funding being your first venture, I don't know. I have no idea. But but yes, of course, also true. But why Why do you recommend stay away from funding? Well, I think, you know, and I, I, I think in our case, we just did not want to deal with spending time writing that business plan and then spending time trying to get funding. Like mm-hmm. that instead, the time seemed much better spent focusing on bringing in revenue and making that revenue profitable so we could pay the bills. I... When people are working with it, first of all, it's a lot of, it's, very, it's a big challenge to get that funding, particularly when you don't have a track record, you know, as you say, but, and it's not the best use of your time because then even if you do, getting the sales and the profit is the hard part. 
And even if you're dealing with money, it's the hard part. I mean, one example is we encountered a company that we acquired that had something like $82, $83 million of funding. When we acquired that company, I believe it was $1.2 million in revenue. So oh my you can have all the money in the world, but that doesn't bring in the revenue. And yeah. so there you are putting your all your hours and time and efforts into getting funding when the time is much better spent getting revenue and making it profitable revenue. The other reason is, of course, it's great if the, in the end, if you are the sole owner, wonderful situation, you own the whole thing. Or if you have a partner, if you're the sole two owners, you maintain much more control over the situation and you don't spend your time answering to other people and worrying about short-term goals at the expense of long-term goals and, and long-term profit. So there are a lot of reasons over time that it's very important. Um, and the fewer people you have involved in as owners can also be beneficial because I hear people who have issues with their, yeah, with their investors too. And so for a lot of reasons. But, but I love it. Yeah. Really, no, very, very yeah. smart. I, I also believe that people take on way too much money way too early on at shitty valuations. And then they get, yeah. I mean, then, you know, you look at the entrepreneur 10, 20 years down the road, and all of a sudden they own barely nothing of their company. And it looks good when they sell it at a high, you know, high multiple um, when there's a, a press release around it. But ultimately they walk away with like almost pennies because they've exactly. diluted themselves so much. Right, right. And I couldn't agree with you more. Right. You don't want you want to own 100% or 50 some percent or whatever. So I think that's super important. And, you know, I used to say revenue is vanity, profit is sanity, because people sometimes would focus on revenue, but it wasn't profitable revenue. And I remember that happened in the 90s. And with uh, when people were still getting revenue, but now it's almost like funding is vanity. And really, what you need is that revenue and profit above all that's sanity and that's what you need to focus on so absolutely speak to me about your growth strategy because i've never heard of a growth strategy like yours outside of a franchise model i guess i don't know if that's the best way to describe it but you would airdrop people into cities and they were successful so I want to understand how you grew this business because that is a wild strategy to me that you would put somebody on their own and they would actually do okay basically selling those services into a whole new market. Yes. And, you know, initially in the early years, I mean, the very early years, the first maybe three years, we were doing it all from New York. And then we thought, okay, to be to become a global company, we need to start having these satellite offices. And also clients want that local presence. So it's in their best interest too. So remember, we started with San Francisco just to kind of give a, a tangible example. And basically what we said to the person leading that office, and we did this with every office is, okay, you need to sell $50,000 a month for three consecutive months, and then you can bring in a second person. And then the two of you need to sell $120,000 for three consecutive months, and then you can bring in a third person, and three, you need to sell 190,000 for three consecutive months, and so on. And that's how we paid for it. And we did it a very low cost model, because as I said, these were one person offices and they were in executive suite situations, were, which were the most cost effective way to go. And as a result, the, the rent was very low, one or two person offices, starting with one person, but they, they had the revenue goals. 
and they were very incentivized because they didn't want to work alone. They wanted to have their own company under them. It was an entrepreneurial situation. And we paid them like entrepreneurs, whereby when their revenue went up, they, they made a lot more. So they had a low draw, but a high upside. So the goal was to pay as low a draw as they were comfortable with, but then mm-hmm. make it so they had a high upside and they would make more than they would anywhere else in the industry. And they would really feel like an entrepreneur. And we made it so they had a commission that didn't sunset. If mm-hmm. I mean, if you, I can elaborate on that if you want. But uh, No, I think it's smart too. The, only, the reason why I think it's really interesting to go into this model is because you speak a lot about the employees have to feel like owners. But- I feel that very few people accomplish that effectively. I think there's a couple of issues that present themselves. Number one, you're not paying them a lot, so they don't care about the business. Uh, number two, if you're trying to do a low draw and high commission, then um, you have to find the right people that are very self-sufficient, self-motivated, are confident in their own abilities. And I feel like that's a very hard profile to find. And obviously, you've perfected how to find that person. but the, the strategy that you deployed, I think a lot of business owners, founders would love to deploy, but it's the people problem that they have an issue with and they can never solve for it. No, you're right. And it is the hardest part. That is the key to having a successful business, right? Finding and hiring and developing and retaining the right people. And often it's some of it's not developing. It's just they are the right people when they come in and they they have what they, they need. They have the the threshold level of qualities they need. But related to what you're asking is, I think it helps if you hire people who are young, who don't, who aren't married, who don't have families that they need to support, who are used to living. Higher risk. They're okay with higher risk. They'll, they'll take the risk. They'll make less if they're not successful, but they're looking to make more than they could ever make. So they don't need the security. They're willing to take the risk because they know they want to feel like entrepreneurs or, or be entrepreneurs within our company or within a company. And that's the situation you can provide. The other thing you can do over time is phantom stock, or I guess they're, you know, employee, I mean, ESOPs, but I mean, phantom stock is another way to do it without actually giving away equity and basing that stock on the, the revenue and the profit of the company. But I think for us, the key was finding like-minded people who really wanted to build something big and create a hundred person office or a 200 person office, and then be managing people outside of their office in, in other cities or countries in our company. And that's precisely what we did. Uh, a quote from you, very entrepreneurial quote, work today like no one else will, so you can live and give tomorrow like no one else can. What does that quote mean? Yes. And I mean, that's really, and I, putting in the hours and sacrificing. And I, you know, it's not what people want to hear, right? I mean, people want to hear there's a way to be a mega success without doing that. But everybody I can think of, and I read about and I learn about who's created huge companies, billion dollar companies, or, or even, you know, uh, successful companies that are not that large, have put in a lot of hours and and given up some things in the early years to create the infrastructure that they want and the right sales team. I mean, I, I've talked a lot about sales. I think the right sales solution is critical because you can't do it alone. The entrepreneur cannot be the 
the salesperson for the company or even the most important salesperson or the head person, a salesperson. I mean, ultimately you have to have a well-oiled machine, but in order to create that, you have to put in the hours over, over a sustained period of time. But the today is not, you know, forever in that quote. I mean, I hear of entrepreneurs who sell incredibly successful companies after five years, seven years, 10 years. I mean, I, in my case, I did it for 26 years, but it got a lot better after those early years, but it relates to the first million or the first 5 million is by far the toughest. In the early years, you have to give it more than anyone else. You have to work, outwork anyone else. You have to be available when no one else is. And that really leads to a well-oiled machine and success at the highest level. And it's exciting and interesting because if you choose the right path with the right passion, a passion that can make money and you work with amazing people, it can be fun and exciting for all of you. So it's really a great way to go. Do you ever, I mean, I, obviously you sacrifice throughout your career, but when did you feel like you didn't have to sacrifice as much in terms of your time, your energy, your, your life? When was that point in your career journey when, it was it was always hard work, but it became something that was more sustainable long term. Or has it has the entirety of it always been like balls to the wall, like nonstop hustle, hustle? And I don't think that's the case. But when was that point? Got easier, right? I mean, it yeah, definitely yeah. got easier. You know, the first few years were 100, 120 hours a week. And then, you know, I would say about uh, 10 years into it, it got more like. 80 hours a week. I mean, you know, the, the answer is, I think when it's your own and you're working with, you know, no funding and you're completely responsible. And when you're the CEO, even when you have funding, even when it's a public company, I think ultimately it's hard to let go. But I think it got a lot better after eight or 10 years. And then maybe it got even a lot better as far as hours after about 15 years. <laughs> but, you know, I think you never really let go until, you know, you, you say goodbye and sell. Yeah, yeah. And that's okay. Because as I say, it's very exciting. But, you know, in the early years, I mean, I think the important thing is you can, you can, it's maybe multiple phases. And I guess I mentioned what what they are. And, um, you know, it's fun and exciting and interesting, but hard work, but it's only work if you'd rather be doing something else. Yeah, that's true. I think I think that's one thing, you know, I've had this debate about hustle culture and I, I don't love hustle culture, but I don't hate it either. I think that it has a place. But I think that the issue is people don't understand what they're getting into and they also don't have an end goal in mind. So they start to build something and then it takes over their life and then it jeopardizes relationships. And I do believe that for a period of any successful person's life, there is an unorthodox amount of energy targeted towards one thing that they're trying to build. But I also think that there has to be at one point an exit so that life, if that is what the person wants, life can be more holistic and you can spend more time with your spouse and your kids and whatnot. But it does for a period, a season of your life, it does take this insane amount of energy and effort. And I think people have to be okay with that, but they have to be aware of it first because I don't think people are even aware of what that means when they build something from scratch. 
Yeah, no, you're absolutely right, Scott. And I agree. And I think we all learn over time. This is not sustainable. We need a work-life balance. We certainly learned with our employees. We couldn't hire people and just pay them more and pay them more and expect them to work 80 hours a week. That Nobody wants that. Or certainly nobody wants it long term. And I think you realize the same thing yourself as an entrepreneur. And that's why, yes, it, it gets a lot better for us. I, as I said, it was after about eight or 10 years. And then I, even a lot better than that after about 15. But there are people who go in with a, a five-year plan. You know, some people who get investors and then they're going to sell. And they're able to accomplish a great deal in five years. And they're giving it them giving it everything they have for five years and it pays off but depending on how big you want and what your goals are you know it, it could take longer too no i think that's very smart um you wrote the book dream big and win in its most simplest form what does that mean for somebody early on in their career what is the like the one major takeaway even from that title well, I think from the title itself, I think it's important to think about what you really want because a lot of people don't even know what their goals are. They don't know what they want. They're they're not dreaming. They're just they they're being too practical. And I can relate to that because believe me, I was almost too practical and I almost didn't follow my passion a few times. Um, you know, I thought I was going to be a lawyer and then I realized, well, that's not for me. And then I thought I was going into finance, I realized that's not for me. So I think it's very important to figure out what you like and what you don't like and then dream about what you want and then if you're going to dream and try to do something you want which is what i think everyone should do then make it big shoot for the stars because then you're going to get a lot closer to that than if you don't think big and 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 dream big and then carry out the actions to be big so i think that's the idea figure out what you want and then figure out how you can incorporate it into your life and be and make it big because that's fun. It's about competition. It's about winning. And I think we all enjoy that or, or most of us do anyway. And I, and that's who I'm trying to inspire people who, who think that way and, and just need a little push to try it and do it. As you all know, the success story podcast is part of the HubSpot podcast network, which has incredible podcasts for entrepreneurs, business leaders, people just wanting to upskill themselves. One of my favorites that you need to go check out is My First Million, hosted by Sam Parr and Sean Purry. They have incredible guests, Alex Hermosi, Sophia Amoruso, Hassan Minhaj, all sharing their secrets, how they made their first million, and how to apply their learnings to capitalize on today's business trends and opportunity. Go listen to My First Million wherever you get your podcast. We get stuck in these. We get stuck in these frames of reference with like our family or our friends, and it's very hard to break out of those frames of reference. And I think that, you know, you mentioned you're too practical. You're too pragmatic. I think I think that most people don't, on their own, look at life in a different lens, significantly different lens than how their parents looked at life. Maybe a little bit, but not not exponentially different. So what's the exercise for somebody that's listening to this and they're like, I all the all the all the people around me, all the reference points think that this salary is good and that this life is good and this is the way we're supposed to be and this is the way we're how, how we're supposed to do things and this is I'm supposed to get this kind of nine to five job and nothing wrong with any of that. But the person's listening to this, they're like, I would love to dream big. I just don't have a reference point that would allow me to do that properly. I don't know where to conceptualize what big is. How far can I go? How can I build a billion dollar company that makes no sense to me? 
Yeah, and 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 it doesn't. But but you can be enormously happy and successful if you build, you know, something else, right? True. It doesn't, it doesn't have, have to be a billion dollar. It could be a hundred million dollar. I'll right. take anything. I'll take right. anything. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You get to a certain level, and yeah, exactly. And and it's not about that, right? So I think though, I think you do have to. I mean, I hate to say not to listen to the people in your life, but sometimes you have to not listen to the people in your life. I was fortunate because I had amazing role models in my parents. They both worked. They both uh, were very ambitious and creative and goal oriented. And my dad was very entrepreneurial. Um, but I will say when I was about to start TransPerfect, um, when I told him I made a horrible mistake with this finance job, I'm going to quit and I'm going to start a translation company. <laughs> he said, well, Liz, that, that sounds really fun, but you're not going to make you know, as much money as you would doing something else. I just thought, yeah. well, we'll see. I'll show you. <laughs> believe me. He gave me, he was my mentor and my advisor and my coach over the years. So I listened to him on almost everything, but you also have to follow your heart. And, you know, I thought, I'm not feeling good about this other thing. It's worth a try. And I will just prove him wrong. I'll prove anyone wrong. And I think a lot of us enjoy doing that too. So that can be a very good incentive to do it. If people in your life are saying, oh, why would you do that? You can't do that. Follow your own heart. You know what you're talking about. And if I, I know, I, think that, yes. if I can do it, if I can do this, anybody can do it. Really, that's the most important lesson of all, because I think I learned that through all the things I did wrong and all the adversity and all the, you know, that situation in 10th grade. If I can do this, really, anyone can do it. Um, speak to me about why we should concentrate on verbs and actions. What does that mean to you? Yeah, well, I, I think it's that a lot of people say things like, oh, I want to create a billion dollar company. I want to create the, the, an amazing app that does this, a world changing app, or I'm going, I have this idea for this technology or that technology, but then they, they don't think of exactly what they need to do to make it happen. I think that's the concept of having goals with deadlines. What are all the actions you need to make, take to literally get there? And, you know, as I was saying, in our case, it was, okay, get on the phone, cold call, I mean, and then send out mass mailings. Now do the work, do the work, basically. Do the yeah. work, do the work. Yeah. And then, you know, when you're hiring people, make sure you look for the right things. But yes, do put the work. Don't talk about it so much, just do it. And again, put aside your hobbies, what's fun, what's interesting, maybe going out with your friends every night for drinks. Like, no, the actions to get you there are, are the key. So you think that it's it's interesting because you wrote the book, Dream Big, which is part of the problem. Obviously, people aren't dreaming big enough, but then there is a follow-up, right? And I, obviously, this is in the book as well. It's not just about dreaming. It's about doing the things. And I think that there's actually an issue that I've noticed. People are highly ambitious people are consuming nonstop uh, professional, personal development content listen to all the podcasts, listen to podcasts like this one. They listen to everybody on YouTube. They read all, all the books and then they don't do shit. <laughs> they yes. just consume yes. nonstop. Yes. And and that's why what, I think I have a phrase in the, in the book where I say doing eclipses dreaming. I mean, yeah, I may try to get people excited 
to dream because I think you have to dream. You have to have the vision to do something great and to put in the time. But then in the end, it's about doing. And you're absolutely right. People listen to so many things. And I think, wow, how do you have the time for that? If you're working, if you're trying to build something. So yes, I couldn't agree with you more. It's about doing. Doing eclipses dreaming. Um, one of the things that I thought was was really, there's a couple of leadership lessons that you've spoken about in your own in your own career and in your own in your own building of, of Transperfect as well as in the book. I want to go into these because I think they're very interesting. And I want your perspective. So we've spoken about a few. So we spoke about employee ownership. Uh, we spoke about um, obviously like aligning incentives. Uh, but there's a few others. So one of the keys to motivating people, because obviously what you've done is you've motivated people and ex- to an exceptional degree, which has allowed them to execute and ultimately the people are what made Transperfect. It's it's all the people that that basically did their job to an exceptional degree. So let's talk about motivating and let's talk about working with different people and different temperaments and talents and convictions. So you said the key to motivating employees is taking a personal a personal stake, excuse me, in that person's success. So that sounds great on paper. When you have a thousand employees, how do you do that anymore? Right. Well, I think you certainly do it with the people that are reporting directly to you. And Mm -hmm. then you ask the people who are reporting directly to you to do it with the people reporting to them and the people and so on down the line. So I think that is incredibly important. You can, yeah, you can't do it with a thousand employees, but each let you, you share the vision directly with your direct reports. They share it with their direct reports, but, but then you also have to find ways to share the vision with and motivate all of the employees. And you can do that at, when you have a, a um, national sales conference an international sales conference, you can, you can motivate all the salespeople at one time. Same when we had a, a global production conference, same thing. So you can get up there and speak and motivate people, or you can do it on, I guess, a company-wide webinar. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you so much indeed for sponsoring Success Story. For all business leaders out there, Indeed is a lifesaver. See, we're always driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You're going to ditch the busy work and you're going to use Indeed for scheduling, screening, messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. 
Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clary. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clary right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clary. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. So there are But you make yourself accessible. You're making yourself accessible. Oh, absolutely. So yes, I think that's absolutely key. And yeah, it's the whole management, managing by walking around, right? Whether it's walking around an office, traveling to the offices, making it so people can call you anytime and that you will check on them anytime. One of the lessons that's very important to me that I learned after making some mistakes was the importance of one-on-one meetings. And you do that with your direct reports where you're really sitting down and saying, you know, ideally once a week, if you can't, once every two weeks can work too and say, how are you doing? And then they say, fine. You say, no, how are you really doing? And you really are interested in them and invested in them as people. And you deal with personal issues. And then as far as feedback, as far as business, you give them feedback and then you ask them for feedback about you and the company and what we, the company or the department or the company can be doing better. You can also do skip level meetings to show people you care. Another thing that is very important to me is um, questionnaires, employee questionnaires. And we got some of our very best ideas from employees, whether um, it was new innovations or just problems to solve. And my favorite question was always, what would you do differently if you owned the company or if you ran the company? Mm-hmm. And get some really great information that way. Um, exit interviews, I feel the same way about. I love reading exit interviews because I learned so much. And uh, that was helpful as well. Um, I mean, there, there are a lot. Of, I'm big on awards and, you know, giving awards at every um, summer party, every company-wide conference, every holiday party, acknowledging people publicly, that's very important, but there's so it's many like little things, things, but there's, they're, they're yeah. very important. Absolutely. And then, you know, I think I've also heard, and I agree with this, that sure people care to some degree about what they're being paid, but it's more about how, how are they being treated? Are they be treated, being treated with kindness and respect? Number one, um, are they learning? Are they growing? Number two. And, um, you know, their relationship with their direct supervisor. So I think, you know, making sure those things are going as they should be. Um, and and finally, I guess, low one other thing I would add to that is a purpose, feeling like there's a purpose behind the work they're doing. One of the, you know, you, you really speak about communication quite a bit, like with, with the team, with peers, with employees, with direct reports. Um, and I mean, there's a variety of different ways to interpret this. I mean, you've read Radical Candor with Kim Scott, very similar view towards communication and transparency but speak to me about um the the ability to give people the psychological safety to disagree with you in your own in your own company so where did this management style come from for you how did it impact you uh what are some ideas even that maybe in transperfect wouldn't have happened if you didn't have this idea or this management philosophy 
oh, so many ideas wouldn't have happened. <laughs> we had so <laughs> many amazing people with amazing ideas. Uh, first of all, as far as what prompted me to feel that way is, I know I'm definitely not the smartest person in the room. And I was so much about hiring people who impressed me and were smarter than me. And that wasn't hard. Believe me, that was not hard. So I think it's so important to hire people who are smarter than you, who have ideas, and then, you know, listen to what they have to say and incorporate it unless there's a good reason not to. And often, you know, that is the case. So I think it's just from my own feeling like, I'm not, you know, there's so many things I'm not good at and, you know, whether, I mean, I could start listing them, but <laughs> not sure I need to do that right now, but you need people <laughs> who really compliment yeah. you with their strengths and their knowledge. So I think that's what makes me feel that way. I need people's ideas. And, you know, a lot of people who have coach have coaches and mentors. I relied a lot on our employees for their input. And, you know, some examples were we had something like TransPerfect Linguist Certification, which was really the gold standard to certify linguists. That was brought to us by one of our employees. I mean, she was a, a leader too, but she brought us that idea. Wonderful idea to come up with our own certification rather that, that was the best in the industry that you know we weren't doing. We were relying on others. Another was to become ISO certified. That was very important to regulated industries like finance like uh, life sciences that was brought to us by one of our employees who had that idea given to him by a client you know the employees are on the front line they're talking to clients so that was another one a good other good one another one was to stop sorry to start litig our litigation support services division and that was based on the idea of one of our employees and that ended up being a big division and because what our our the guy who brought it to us said, the salesperson, he said, we're dealing with the translations, but we're also working with a hundred law firms. They all need the other parts of the job. You know, what mm -hmm. happens before it comes to us for a translation and what comes to us after. And that's the litigation support services step part. So, you know, that's another kind of idea that's really important just to talk about. It's not just about being a translation company because we were a lot more what happened is we realized, okay, we've got Fortune 1000 clients, we've got all the global 200 law firms, what other services do they need? So that's why even if your idea at the beginning when you're starting a company seems small or that not that many different industries or companies need it, if you have the right values and you have the motivation, you can pivot you can add services you can add technologies you know if you have the right people to to make this happen and that's the beauty of being an entrepreneur it's not like the day you start that's what you you offer you can add and pivot and change along the way and i think that's critical to being a very successful being being a very wildly successful entrepreneur so you yeah so you have the so you have these like feedback loops basically that you've built into your company with all the people you work with which yes. give you endless ideas and it just makes you much more, um, you kind of like disrupt yourself with these feedback yes. loops that constantly keep making you better and better. And then you also, that that combined with no ego, because if you had an ego, then you wouldn't listen to anyone else. You just think you're the smartest person in the room, which is obviously, you know, everyone is never the smartest person in the room. And if you are, first of all, get out of that room, but also that's not the reality for anyone, right? That's right. 
That's right. And so, yeah, it's about finding the right people who are curious, who love to learn, who have ideas, and then make it so they are very incentivized to to bring these ideas to you. I mean, we had innovation contests. We had uh, rules where to be promoted, you needed to bring an innovation, bring a new idea for the company. We, you know, we had a lot of different incentives to make people want to do that. And I think that can be very valuable as well. So obviously these feedback loops are important. I thought this point was very interesting uh, in the book because we've been speaking about innovation a lot. Innovation is a way to make sure that your business thrives, is healthy, stays relevant, stays successful. But you also speak about how innovation can be a crutch and it's an overrated route to success. Walk me through what that means. Well, I just, I feel like, and I, you know, the idea of having some new idea, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of us want to be wildly successful. We love the idea of being entrepreneurs. We love the idea of building our own dream rather than someone else's, but we don't have some brand new idea. I mean, I certainly didn't. And so I think it's the concept of what I was talking about earlier, where seeing a need that seeing something that's already being done, but how can it be done better? And in yeah, our yeah. case, it was okay. It needs to be more service oriented. Um, it needs to be done faster. The turnaround times for getting this work done need to be faster. And it needs to be a one-stop shop and it needs to be global, you know, as far as where the offices are. So I think um, it's about doing what might be already being done, but doing it better, making sure you're really filling the needs that people have. And I think that that's critical. I love and that. that makes, um, so we all can be entre entrepreneurs. We don't have to come up with something brand new. I know. I think people overcomplicate it. It's, it's silly. There's no reason for it. I mean, there's so many. I, <laughs> when you when you when you went into this industry, there was already a, it was a 90 person company, but a 90 person company is not huge, but it's not nothing. So, you know, you could try and figure out how to innovate and you can try and figure out how to build an app or whatever, or you could just do what they're doing even better. And that can be also a way to build a company. <laughs> like, you don't always have to be a developer or, or an Elon Musk trying to get people on Mars, whatever it is. That's not what 99% of entrepreneurship is. That's right. And the other thing, I mean, I didn't say this, but, and this maybe could motivate people to be entrepreneurs. But when we started the company in 1992, there were 10,000 other translation companies already out there. I didn't mention that, but they were small. They were mom and pops. They were mm -hmm. two to five people primarily. I mean, there were some a little bigger. And that, so the idea was to be a pioneer in the industry and to grow something bigger. So even if you are dealing with 10,000 competitors and a lot of people are or more, you can, you can create something different. Yeah. Spoil the client with service, you know, or all the other things to make it something better than what's out there. So let's, let's talk about the, the, the decision you made after 26 years, you left uh, TransPerfect. So walk me through that decision. Why did you decide that 26 years, this is good. I'm, I'm starting something else. Well, okay. I mean, I learned a tremendous amount. I, I really did. I mean, 26 years, it was wonderful. And I worked with so many amazing people um, that I loved. They were a second family to me. But my partner and I, truthfully, were having issues. <laughs> and that can happen after five or 10 years. And, you know, we had our challenges along the way, but it got difficult after about 20 and one of us really, I mean, we, we needed to make a change. I mean, 
different mm-hmm. goals, different aspirations, just different. There were differences. And I thought, this has been great. I've loved it, but there's a lot more I want to do with my life. Um, you know, and one route would have been to end up, you know, in, well, just without getting into too much specifics, there's a lot more I can do that I haven't had time to yeah, do. No so problem. I ended up yeah. selling without getting into the specifics of what happened because I looked at buying and I came very close to buying, but without getting into the specifics of why I ultimately didn't end up owning the company, I thought I will say goodbye to this because that was the result and do all the things I've always wanted to do that I haven't had time to do. And I, that was such a blessing. And I'm so thrilled that that happened. I had been very interested in philanthropy and giving back. As I said earlier, I'm one of the lucky ones. I talked about realizing that when I was 14, I was a lucky one for living with that brush with death. And then I realized I was a lucky one for being able to own and ultimately sell this billion dollar company. So I need to give back. I was, you know, I was born into the right situation and then I met the right people and, you know, that was what happened. Um, so that was one thing. I also had never gone on maternity leave. I didn't get one day of maternity leave because of our situation. And so I thought, okay, I'll get to spend a little more time with my kids. That will be mm-hmm. wonderful. And then finally, I thought, I love talking about entrepreneurship and I've been doing that since I sold. And I want to keep talking about entrepreneurship and I want to share my lessons in a book because now is the time. If not now, when? I've loved this whole publishing process, this whole being an author and talking to people like you. Oh my gosh, I've met so many amazing people just over the last year or two through this. And I'm thrilled about it. And I'm, you know, loving every minute of it. So it was ultimately a blessing, even though at the time it was difficult to say goodbye. 26 years, it was my baby. It was mm-hmm. my idea. I was very connected to it, but it was time and, and life is amazing now. So I'm so incredibly fortunate. I, this is going to be a, a question that a few people this will resonate with. A lot of people, it'll be confusing, but stay with me. So when, and only because a lot of people have not exited a company, that's really the only reason. But I have some friends that have, and Every time I talk to them, it's a very different story. But a lot of people are so, when they reach this pinnacle of success, this level of success, it's hard for them to relax and to chill out and to do to do nothing. And you're not doing nothing, but you're not at the same capacity as as where you were at certain points in your last 26 years. How how is life after after Transperfect? Is is are are you content? Are you happy? Do you feel like you'll build something again? Is and I guess is is the entrepreneurial bug, is that something that you can turn on or off? Or is that something that's going to be with you for the rest of your life? Well, you know, I, I loved doing what I was doing. And I'm definitely incredibly busy now and loving every minute of it. But what I don't miss is needing to be in the office every day at 830 mm. and needing to stay in that office until six or six thirty and then go out and do a company event at night or travel to another city for a company event. Not that I didn't enjoy those things while I was doing it, but the stress and the pressure and the lack of freedom that you feel when you're all in on one thing for an extended period of time, uh, 
I don't miss. And instead now, you know, I mentioned all the wonderful things I can do with the philanthropy and the boards that I'm on and really helping people who've been less fortunate and learning about all the different issues that are out there that need solving and then getting to focus on entrepreneurship still, but doing it in a way that is not just within our company, but it's kind of in general to help people create better lives for themselves. That's just incredibly rewarding. And I think you can be just as busy, but you can do it more on your terms, like you yeah, know, yeah. getting to run around and have this meeting and speak at this event and, and you're in charge of your time. And I found that difficult even after 20 or 25 years, because you need to be a, mo a role model for your employees. You need to be there if you're asking them to work and stay the night at times or do whatever they needed to do. Not that they needed to do that over, you know, ultimately we found solutions. So they didn't need to do that, but I needed to be there too. And I love the freedom and doing the things I love most and being able to let go of mm -hmm. the things that I wasn't enjoying so much. So I think it's wonderful once you sell, even though, you know, it can be very emotional. You can still be incredibly busy and doing what you think is incredibly important and valuable work. What would be if you're going to give one last lesson, but actually before we do one last lesson, is there anything that we didn't go into that, that you wanted to speak about? I, I, I wanted to pull out all these lessons from the book. I think we got those a lot of lessons from your 26 years of TransPerfect. Um, is anything else that I didn't touch on? I think you did a phenomenal job touching on <laughs> <laughs> so many, so many things. You're really, yes, I love that. Thank you're you. So I appreciate it. Well, no, it was a lot of fun. I, I, I enjoyed like studying like your, your, your life, your history. I, I enjoyed the book, like very, very good lessons. So I'm happy we got to do this. Um, but yes, one last entrepreneurial lesson that after 26 years, I'm, I know there's going to be a million <laughs> humor me, <laughs> humor <laughs> me with one last <laughs> entrepreneurial lesson that you give over to the, the people that are listening. I just think it's so worth it to at least try it, to try being an entrepreneur. Worst thing that happens is it won't work out. And then, okay, you go get another job or you go start another company and you learn what you did wrong and, and you do it better or right the next time. So I, I think go out there, try it. If you have an idea, if you don't have an idea, try to come up with them, uh, come up with it. And then of course, keep being out there and networking and looking for people to to partner with, to hire, um, because, you know, I think in life, um, you know, you can go and work at a company, but as I said earlier, then you're, you're not building your own dream. You're building someone else's. There may be issues that you can't control that you want to change. And maybe you don't love the work as well, you know, the tight, the industry. Mm -hmm. So go pursue that dream, build it, think big, take the risk. There's no time like now and, and don't quit, stay with it. And then if it doesn't work out, just move on, but go for it because it really is so much fun and so incredibly rewarding. I love that. Um, where can people connect with you? Where can people get your book? Um, where the, the websites, the socials, anything you want to drop? Thank you. Well, as far as connecting with me, it's uh, Liz Elting on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, um, LizElting.com website. My foundation is ElizabethElting.foundation.com. And then um, the book can be bought on Amazon. Liz Elting, Amazon, Liz Elting, Dream Big and Win. So um, 
Yes, thank you so incredibly much. And I, you know, I really hope people like it. I tried to make it a fun, entertaining read with life and business lessons. And I, and I, I just so love this conversation, Scott. It's been fabulous. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate. It. I really appreciate that. And also, by the way, like she, you know, you're 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 not you're not even selling yourself. So Scott Galloway, Arianna Huffington, Cheryl Sandberg, they've all said this book is incredible. So obviously, these are some pretty heavy hitters. So definitely check it out. Um, if you were going to tell your 20-year-old self one piece of advice, what would it be? Wow. Just, you know, um, it's fine that you're afraid, you know, because people say, people are, you know, and, and this maybe, I know you've heard this, people have heard this, but leaders are, and people who've been successful and business people, it's not that they're fearless, it's that they've got the fear and then they do it anyway. And I guess I'd say to myself, it's okay to be fearful. It's okay to be scared. Just don't, don't put your, don't be so tough on yourself. Just feel that way and then do it anyway. And, you know, fortunately I did have the opportunity to do it, but I, I was nervous about doing things. And now I just kind of say yes to all things, kinds of things I'm afraid of every day. And I would tell, tell myself back then, that's what I should have been doing every day. So, love it, love it. Yeah. and then last, last thing I have to ask you at this point in your life, what does success mean to you? Okay. Well, yeah, at this point, it's basically having wonderful relationships and, and great with wonderful relationships with and your friends and your family and finding something that you love doing that has a purpose and giving back. Um, and if you have all of those things in your life, I think you're just incredibly lucky and you should feel success that you've achieved success. So that's success to me.